Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, oil prices have surged to six-year highs, gas prices at seven-year highs. What is the impact on the post-pandemic recovery and the economic health of consumers in general? Also this morning, approximately 48 million people in the United States are caregivers to a loved one, a responsibility that presents challenges on many fronts. Family caregivers among the first to exit the workforce during the pandemic and among the most hesitant to return. Perhaps it's time for a career change that better utilizes that caregiving skill set. And in our ongoing Keeping the Faith series this morning, what are you most looking forward to in retirement? Travel? Time with family? How about a personal reformation in your relationship with God? This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, July 7th, 2021. This is big. This is big. We mentioned that you know every day there's a reason to celebrate. And today is Dive Bar Day. National Dive Bar Day. And it is specifically on July 7th in honor of the quintessential dive bar drink, the 7 and 7. <laughs> so on July 7th, 7-7 seven, seven, uh, is uh, Dive Bar Day in honor of the uh, quintessential dive bar drink, the 7 and 7. That's all kinds of awesome right there. It is also National Chocolate Day. It is Global Forgiveness Day. It is National Macaroni Day. National Strawberry Sunday Day. It is Father-Daughter-Take-A-Walk-Together Day. Isn't that sweet? And it is Tell-The-Truth Day today. So, reasons to celebrate, as there always are. Uh, but that is uh, that is really cool, National Dive Bar Day. And, of course, it would be on 7-7. Uh, seven, seven. <clears throat> so, here is the controversy of the day. Uh, we talk about the uh, first things you need to know each morning, the most buzzworthy stories. Stories. Here is the controversy of the day. What is the difference between champagne and sparkling wine? So, obviously, wine lovers will tell you the difference is that champagne comes from the French province of Champagne. Anything else, uh, no matter what it is, even if it's the same exact beverage, if it comes from anywhere else in the world, it's sparkling wine. But champagne specifically comes from the French province of Champagne. Well, maybe not anymore. A new Russian law signed by President Vladimir Putin has winemakers all over the world up in arms. The law basically states that only Russia makes champagne and all foreign producers, including those from the champagne region are in fact, sparkling wine. <laughs> so if you're going to sell sparkling wine in Russia, if you're going to make, uh, if you're going to sell champagne in Russia, it's got to be made in Russia. The law actually forbids foreign merchants to use the term champagne on their bottles. Even champagne from champagne in France. In response, French winemakers are calling on their colleagues to stop selling their goods in Russia. And they say they will challenge the law saying champagne from champagne has legal protection under the controlled application of origin law. This is an international law governing just this sort of thing. Maxime Toubar and Jean-Marie Ballier, co-presidents of the French Champagne Industry Group, says, quote, the Champagne Committee deplores the fact that this legislation does not ensure that Russian consumers have clear and transparent information about the origins and characteristics of their wine, unquote. However, the manufacturer of Vuve Cliqueau and Dom Perignon Champagne has buckled under the pressure. The company says they will comply with the new law and add the words sparkling wine to their bottles. 
In order to make the change, though, shipments have been suspended in the meantime while they can uh, comply with the law. Interestingly enough, the president of sparkling winemaker Abro Durso is not too happy with the law, even though shares of his company rose, went up after the law went into effect. He says, quote, it is very important to protect the Russian wines on our market, but the legislation must be responsible and not contradict common sense, unquote. <laughs> we are talking about Russia here, right? Common sense really has nothing to do with it. Uh, he notes his wines are not considered champagne. I have no doubts that the real champagne is made in the Champagne region of France. So this is the big controversy that folks are up in arms about. What? You say you're not up in arms about that? Well, you should be. You should be. Uh, good news out of Russia. This is kind of interesting. Uh, researchers in Russia have announced that they have produced that country's first viable cloned cow. Now, the reason why this is significant is that they are now editing the cow's genes in hopes of producing, are you ready for this, hypoallergenic milk. It says here the unnamed calf weighed about 140 pounds when she was born in April of last year, and for the first year of her life, she was kept in a separate enclosure with her mother. But now, at 14 months, she is up to nearly a half ton and appears healthy with a normal reproductive cycle, the experiment, they say, was a win. This is a report from Moscow's Skoltech Institute of Science and Tech Technology. Because they've considered a win because the researchers successfully altered the cow's genes so as not to produce the protein that causes lactose intolerance in humans. How about that? A hypoallergenic cow. Oh, uh, what's amazing stuff right there. So you could have milk, uh, even those who are lactose intolerant could have real cow's milk. That's pretty impressive, actually. So kind of interesting. Some of the other uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories uh, to uh, start your day. So did you travel over the 4th of July holiday weekend? A lot of folks did. And uh, that's been one of the big news stories. Uh, here for the past couple of weeks is the resurgence in travel among Americans who have been locked down for a year and are ready to bust out and go somewhere, anywhere. A new ranking by the travel booking platform Musement ranks the most popular attractions in each state. The most popular tourist attractions in each of the 50 states. Now, some are not particularly surprising. Walt Disney World is number one in Florida, Disneyland in California, the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, Missouri, the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Those are the ones that you can probably guess. Others might be a bit unexpected. So I was looking at this list, and I thought it was really interesting. In Michigan, the top spot goes to the Henry Ford Museum. The Indianapolis Zoo in Indiana, Hershey Park in Pennsylvania. It is Blackwater Falls State Park, the number one tourist attraction in West Virginia. And in Kentucky, the Ark Encounter, which that one I was a bit surprised. I knew that was very, very popular, but there are others. I would have thought maybe Churchill Downs or something like that in Kentucky, Mammoth Cave, uh, the... Uh, what is it? The Corvette Museum is in uh, Kentucky. I thought that would be right up there. But number one, the Ark Encounter. Some of the other noteworthy attractions, their tops in their respective states. Central Park in the state of New York, which, again, that was a bit of a surprise. Central Park, uh, obviously very popular among New Yorkers and those who go to the Big Apple. But what about uh, Niagara Falls? I would have guessed that that would be up there, but Central Park is number one. The Alamo in Texas, although visitor numbers for the city of Waco are giving the Alamo a run for its money thanks to the popularity of the Chip and Joanna Gaines empire. But the Alamo in Texas long been number one there. Seattle's Pike Place Market in Washington State. Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. Yellowstone, Wyoming, again, not a big surprise. The Mall of America 
is Minnesota's number one attraction still. And the Fremont Street experience in Nevada. Uh, Although, to be fair, uh, it is hard to track specific visitors to the Strip in Las Vegas because it's not a specific destination per se. But they say the specific destination in Nevada is the Fremont Street experience in Las Vegas, downtown Las Vegas. Which is a really cool thing. If you ever get a chance to go to uh, Las Vegas, if you're ever in Vegas, go to the Fremont Street experience. It's pretty cool. I mean, the Strip is cool, but Fremont Street is is really cool. And by the way, in Ohio, the top attraction falls under the not surprising category. What do you think it is? Cedar Point, of course. So, interesting. Top attractions in each state. And this... From the, do we really need this category? We've got the Fox News Channel. We've got the Fox Business Channel. There's a Fox Sports. And now, Fox Weather. That's right. Uh, the folks at Fox are getting into the weather. A 24-7 streaming service called Fox Weather will launch later this year, according to the New York Times. Fox reported, uh, reportedly building a new studio at its New York City headquarters and hiring meteorologists from stations across the country to staff the new channel. The Weather Channel is readying to compete with its own streaming site called Weather Channel Plus. Byron Allen, whose company owns the Weather Channel, had positive words for his new competitor, saying, Now the world will understand how big of a business the weather is and how important it is. Well, I think we knew how important the weather is. But do we need another weather channel? I mean, we actually have several. There's the weather The weather channel is probably the best known. You've got Weather Nation. You've got AccuWeather uh, has uh, their own channel. Uh, the Weather Network, Weather Underground. You've got all kinds of big weather platforms. And now Fox Weather. Jay Sewers of United Talent Agency says it is a no-brainer for Fox to do this, saying all the networks are ramping up for weather their weather divisions. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to, uh, to figure out that climate change and the environment will be the story of the next decade, they say. So make of that what you will, but the Fox Weather Channel is coming. I don't know. We'll wait and see. There you go, some of the most uh, interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning start. Hard to believe it's Wednesday already. Didn't we just start the week yesterday? WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast, a chance of showers and storms today with a high of 88. Showers and storms possible tonight, a low of 71. The Finley Police Department says a man was arrested after stabbing another man during a fight. It happened in the 2400 block of Jennifer Lane at around 9.30 Monday night. Police arrived on the scene to find a 26-year-old man suffering from a stab wound. He was taken to Blanchard Valley Hospital for treatment of a wound that police describe as not life-threatening. Police say William Burkhalter, 35 years old of Findlay, was taken into custody at the scene. He was transported to the Hancock County Justice Center and charged with felonious assault. Get more on our website. Authorities in Dayton say a teenage girl died after she was struck by gunfire during a gun battle between two people at a party over the holiday weekend. Officers were called to a home and found a 13-year-old girl with a gunshot wound. Police say she was taken to a hospital where she died. Dayton police say the initial indications are that a gathering was taking place at the home attended by numerous adults and children, and two individuals got into an argument that led to an exchange of gunfire. A man was being sought for questioning. Dave James, I went in news. Governor DeWine has signed Collins' law, which increases penalties for hazing in Ohio, and the governor says the new law does much more than that. Requires the Ohio Department of Higher Education to implement a statewide anti-hazing plan and requires staff and volunteers at colleges and universities to undergo training on hazing awareness and prevention. The law is named after Colin Wyant of Dublin, Ohio, who died from a hazing incident at a fraternity house at Ohio University in 2018. The mother of Stone Foltz, who died in a hazing incident at BGSU in March, said the new law is a step in the right direction, but more needs to be done. The Stuff the Bus Community School Supplies Drive is coming up. 
Your local radio stations are partnering with McDonald's to host the annual Stuff the Bus campaign at the McDonald's on Tiffin Avenue in Findlay. Backpacks are always the greatest need, but you can also donate pencils, crayons, binders, calculators, and much more. We have the full list of needed items on our website. Stuff the Bus will be held Thursday through Saturday. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Well, anyone who had to fill up their tank over the holiday weekend knows the subject of our cover story this morning. Gas prices are almost a dollar a gallon higher than they were a year ago, and oil prices are at a six-year high with recent developments in the commodities market giving indications that there is no end in sight. Chris Ventura is Midwest Director for the Consumer Energy Alliance. And now, Chris, there are a number of reasons for the run-up in gas prices. Increased demand over last year, obviously, and a bottleneck in supply caused by a shortage of truckers, which we have kind of talked about before. But on the commodity side, as we mentioned, there is indication that we may be in for even higher prices. And it is probably not surprisingly due to the goings-on with OPEC and their associated member nations. Explain what has happened here uh, just within the, the past several days. Yeah, well, well, Chris, you're exactly right. You know, once again, our, our friends over, over in the OPEC nations are, are up to their, their old plans again, uh, you know, where we saw in the past couple of days, uh, they could not agree on a plan to actually boost output and, and try to tame the, the oil price increase that we've seen, um, you know, for a barrel of crude, which ultimately impacts what we're paying at the gas pump. Now, to be fair, oil is hardly the only commodity where prices are rising right now. And I know that normally prices, as you point out, will go down when OPEC or any nation announces production increases. But these aren't really normal times. I mean, we really can't be sure that that will be enough to stabilize oil prices, uh, can we? I mean, and at the pump, it may or may not be enough to curb gas price spikes, given all of the other factors at play here. That's correct. You know, we're, we're tracking a number of different um, things that are, are, you know, impacting consumers and what they pay at the pump. You've, you've got the, the OPEC scenario, you know, which we just spoke about. Mm-hmm. You also have a, a decrease in oil and natural gas production here in America. You know, you, you look at Ohio, for example, you know, last year, you know, we were uh, putting out around 77,000 barrels of oil per day just here in Ohio from, from our oil field. And post-pandemic, we're only pumping out about 65,000 barrels per day. And you can, you know, take that and and exact same thing in Texas and the Bakken as well. So why the decrease in domestic output if prices are high enough to sustain that? I mean, in the past, we've heard that domestic, uh, we've heard the excuse when domestic production slows down, it's because uh, the, the price of oil is not high enough to support that. Certainly it is now. It is. But what we see is that a lot of the companies now have a lot more discipline than they have had in the past. Um, you know, one is they're, they're still reeling from the effects of the pandemic and the workforce uh, shortages that we have. So bringing new oil production online isn't as simple as it was, you know, pre-pandemic where mm-hmm. they have the option to just drill new wells and, and pump more oil. And as everyone knows, you were alluding to the price of gas and oil affects prices across the board because transportation is baked into the cost of everything. But here again, there are so many factors impacting the kind of inflation that we have seen of late. The Federal Reserve seems to believe that this is all reactionary to the sudden the sudden restart of the economy. And once those waters kind of calm themselves, we'll see a return to more stable prices. Is, is that uh, the... Is that closer to where we are right now? I mean, can we really look at, at, at oil as sort of the demon here? I, I don't think we can, we can look at it as sort of a demon here. You know, what we do know is that in the event we did have increased oil production here in the United States, you know, we would see downward pressure on prices. But the signals that are being sent from Washington, D.C., especially when it comes to, to opening up uh, federal lands for oil and natural gas exploration are, are very negative. Um, so, you know, when it when it comes to increase in production here in America, uh, very, very negative outlook. And ultimately, that really is the bottom line and why we want to bring all of this up and, and talk about it is because you know, we've established that there are all of these factors baked into what we are seeing with oil prices and by extension gas prices. 
when you take it all in together, ultimately, what is the correlation between all of this and the speed and strength of the post-pandemic economic recovery? And again, this is one more reason you point to the importance of domestic energy production. It, that's correct. It is. And, and even as important as domestic energy production is being able to transport that oil and natural gas to where you need it. You alluded to the shortage of truck drivers earlier, and it's not just a shortage of, of truck drivers that's, that's hampering uh, prices at the pump, but also the, the action by some state governments. You know, take, for example, the, uh, the governor of Michigan, who's looking at shutting down the Line 5 pipeline. Uh, the impact of shutting down Line 5 will have a a tremendous impact on the price that consumers actually pay at the pump, not just in Ohio, but but across the region. And it is kind of interesting to note that last month, the International Energy Agency estimated that global oil demand would reach pre-pandemic levels by the end of 2022. But if you look at the travel industry, in this country anyway, uh, the demand we saw just this past weekend, it is already back, or nearly so, in at least that energy category, which kind of brings up the other point that I'm curious about, and that is, historically, American consumers have taken increased energy costs pretty much in stride. I mean, we gripe about how much it costs to fill the tank, but we still feel we still fill the tank. Uh, any reason to believe that there that will be anything different this time, especially with such pent up demand over the past year? You know, if, if you remember when gas prices hit four dollars on average, you know, just about eight nine years ago or so, where we saw a, a large consumer outcry. You know, if, if we see that type of, of price on the on the gas side as well as on the diesel side, coupled with the inflation that we're seeing in, in just, you know, traditional groceries and other consumer products, mm-hmm. you know, there will be a, a lot of frustration at the gas pump because, I, you know, I would I would hate to be the person who, you know, has to shuttle the kids to and from soccer practice, you know, two or three days a week and face $20 additional dollars every time I have to put money in the gas in the in the gas tank. Do you see that as where this is going? I mean, how uh, how high do gas prices continue to push during the course of the summer before we get past this high demand season? You know, that's a great question. Yeah, when when OPEC had their meeting and decided not to do nothing uh, just earlier this week, um, you know, they, they, they left it up on, on the, uh, the drawing board as to whether or not they're going to actually increase production. And if they do increase production, we will see downward prices. But if they don't, you know, we could see $3.50 gas or more, um, you know, not just here in the Midwest, but in other parts of the country as well. Again, it will be a very interesting to watch how all of this plays itself out. Uh, again, not just uh, within the oil commodity market and at the pump, uh, but h- how it impacts uh, the, uh, as we mentioned, the uh, the speed and the strength of the economic recovery in general, because this is a factor in all of that. Chris Ventura, Midwest Director for the Consumer Energy Alliance, with us this morning. We have a link up on our webpage for more information about their uh, research and analysis on all of this. Chris, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Have a great day. Well, there are approximately 48 million people in this country providing care to an adult family member or friend. Family caregivers are, in fact, the backbone of our long-term care system, and they are breaking under the strain. Bill Sweeney is Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at AARP with us this morning. And Bill, I have always thought this was really odd. We have such an advanced system of healthcare in this country. We have specialists for every conceivable specialty. And yet when it comes to long-term care, it, it, it somehow falls uh, on family members. How do we get to this point? Well, Chris, that's a great point. We, it is a, it's a real challenge for families. Um, you know, the, a vast majority of people want to uh, age in place, so stay in their homes, stay in their communities. And that means that uh, oftentimes loved ones are the ones who help out, who come by and uh, drive mom or dad to the doctor's office mm-hmm. or pick up groceries or uh, or sometimes do really complex medical care. Yeah. So 
it really is a broad continuum of work that goes into helping people uh, stay at home and, and you know, stay where they are, where they want to be. And, and when we talk about uh, family members being the backbone of long-term care, it's not just the uh, activities or the, the day-to-day, the routine of it. It also is uh, financially, uh, it falls uh, to family members in large measure. You actually did a recent study uh, about the financial strains of being a family caregiver. What did you find? Well, the strains are unbelievable. Our new study just came out yesterday and finds that uh, people are spending on average around $7,200 a year uh, to take care of a loved one. And that's about 26% of a family's household income, about a quarter. Mm. And so that's the entire household income going to pay for family caregiving expenses like uh, like home payments or assisted living costs, home health aids. Uh, home modifications like, you know, shower bars or a wheelchair ramp. And that stuff adds up so quickly. Uh, and, and so families are spending, not only are they sort of the whole emotional and physical impact of family caregiving, but really facing some serious financial strains as well. And of course, that uh, says nothing of the potential for lost income as people are spending more and more time caring for family members uh, rather than earning income. So there is that aspect of it as well. And you also uh, point out that there have been uh, additional challenges lumped on family caregivers uh, since COVID hit. That's right. And the pandemic really did a couple of things. First, a lot of families relied on, on support uh, externally, like adult daycares or um, senior centers, all of which had to close because of the pandemic. Right. Um, and 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 as you mentioned, many family caregivers had to take more time uh, to take care of a loved one. So that meant they cut back on their hours at work, or they cut back on their retirement savings. And so we really six in ten family caregivers had to do something work related where there was some kind of impact on their work mm. uh, because of their caregiving responsibilities. So that has a long term financial impact on those families, not just in the short term. Yeah, uh, so getting uh, squeezed from both ends. Are there certain uh, groups of individuals that are uh, most likely to be hardest hit financially? Yeah, well, there are certain groups that are hit hardest. Uh, our research shows that Generation X caregivers are spending the most uh, amount of their money out of pocket, uh, while Generation Z and Millennials, the younger cohort, are spending a significantly higher share of their income on caregiving. So really is hitting those folks hard. And we sometimes call them the sandwich generation, right? The, right. the folks who are taking care of their uh, elderly parents and taking care of young children. So that's a, an especially hard uh, spot for those folks to be in. In addition, we found that in uh, communities of color, the challenges are much higher. African-Americans spend about 34% of their income on family caregiving, and Hispanic and Latino families are spending as much as half of their income hmm. to take care of loved ones. So wow. it's a really big uh, financial commitment. So we lay out all of the data, all of the research, all of the numbers. What then can be done to help? What are you advocating for uh, in terms of providing some help for these family caregivers? Well, thanks. In Congress, we have uh, legislation. It's called the Credit for Caring Act. It's a bipartisan bill uh, supported by Democrats and Republicans in the House and in the Senate. Uh, that doesn't happen very often. These I was going to so say, that's pretty impressive right there. People coming together, right? <laughs> people coming together to support something that is makes a lot of sense. It gives people uh, some money back in their own pockets uh, to save some of those tax dollars for themselves to to do those uh, home modifications or to hire a home health aide or whatever it is they need to do to to help with those out-of-pocket costs. And this makes sense not just for families, but for taxpayers, because, again, helping people stay in their homes means that they're not uh, going into more expensive nursing home care. So this is a smart bill. Uh, it has bipartisan support, and we're hopeful that it gets uh, signed into law this year. Well, and, and uh, again, the fact that it has bipartisan support, I think, speaks to the, the fact that uh, so many Americans Americans are touched by this, and it crosses over all kinds of uh, political and economic, uh, social, uh, social lines, and all of that. I mean, this is a, a universal issue that that affects all of us. Now, obviously, that legislation would uh, help address the uh, issue in the long term. What in the more immediate? What advice? Uh, can you provide to caregivers who are dealing with this right now? And what resources do you have as part of AARP to help? 
Well, you know, I think for most of us who are doing caregiving, we didn't expect to do this until we got a call and it was a really short, you know, it was in two days you yeah. got to figure this out. Right. And so families are often just really struggling to figure out what they're supposed to do. So AARP put together some really incredible free resources on our website, aarp.org slash caregivers. And you can go there and get all kinds of information about, um, about how to plan ahead, what you should be thinking about, the kinds of conversations you should be having with your loved ones sooner rather than later. Um, and again, I'm, I think I got the website. It's aarp.org slash, uh, slash caregiving. And okay. if you go to that website, you can get more information about, uh, about what we have available and, and, and some, some ways and some tips that you can, uh, you can sort of manage all of this. As we mentioned, 48 million people in the United States providing care to an adult family member or friend. And the strain uh, on those uh, individuals and those families is just enormous. Bill Sweeney, again, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at AARP. Uh, Again, let's mention the uh, website. Let's reiterate that. Yes, it's aarp.org slash caregiving. All right, we will link Tons it. Tons of great resources there for, for folks. We will link it up on our webpage as well. Bill, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Well, according to a recent study, 52% of employed parents with school-aged children say handling child care responsibilities during the pandemic has presented a challenge, and that has resulted in more than 2 million working mothers leaving the workforce since the start of the pandemic. In all, it has impacted 40 million caregivers when you include those who provide support to a child, spouse, parent, extended family member, and so on. Brantley Underhill is North American Marketing, uh, Marketing Director for the Project Management Institute. And Brantley, honestly, when I think about this issue, it's not something that I would connect with project management. Is the is the fact that we are considering caregiving kind of within the context of project management indicative of how the definition of a caregiver has expanded over the course of the last year in particular? Well, caregivers in general have the skills that are integral to project management. And if I just take a step back, a caregiver is someone probably like you and me. Like we help people get access to their medicine or drive them to their appointments. We buy and deliver their groceries, might even cook their meals. And today, about one in five Americans cares for another person. That's a lot of people. And these caregivers have this innate set of skills built in. They're empathetic. They have an innovative mindset. They collaborate with and lead others. And these are skills that we at the Project Management Institute call power skills. And they're integral to the profession and managing a successful project. And the reason why this is significant uh, is because, as we mentioned, two million working mothers uh, have left the workforce since the start of the pandemic. This has been an an ongoing challenge is getting people back into the workforce post-pandemic. And uh, as we allude to, this uh, has impacted women in particular, a group that, as we know, is already disproportionately affected in many respects by workplace issues in general and caregiving issues in general. Yes, that's true. People have left the workforce. They're putting their careers on pause. Uh, moms as well as dads and anyone that cares for children have a lot going on. I mean, you just think about virtual or homeschooling that's happened in the last 17 months. That's right. Kind of a job that not many of us have signed up for, but are, are having to assume while juggling work. And some people have just said, you know what, uh, I'm going to put my career on pause. So, uh, with that in mind, as you were talking about some of the skills that uh, put caregivers in a unique position uh, when returning to the workforce, those skills can actually be applied to a career in project management. So, you're kind of uh, encouraging people to give this a second second look as perhaps a, a new direction for one's career. Yeah, so these power skills, empathy, innovation, collaboration, leadership, these are project management skills. These power skills are transferable across all industries and roles. And according to our Talent Gap report, salaries for project management-related roles in the United States are far higher on average by 78%. And to add to that, 25 million new project professionals are going to be needed by 2030 to fill the talent gap. And that's being driven by a higher demand for project-oriented skills. It's also the result of retiring professionals. 
Yeah. Um, just as kind of a sidebar in all of this, again, as we talk about it, as it relates to uh, women, is this uh, an industry where uh, women historically uh, have had a, uh, a more difficult time uh, breaking into and, and uh, you know, making an impact? You know, maybe at the start of our association, PMI has been around for over 50 years, kind of was born out of the construction and engineering industry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, at, at our roots, um, it was predominantly male. But today, um, the split between men and women is almost equal, not quite, mm. but definitely more women have been pursuing this career in, in recent years. So uh, how would a a caregiver go about pursuing a career in project management? How could they benefit? uh, Again, how does this fit into their current uh, responsibility as a caregiver? What resources are out there to help kind of lay this out for us? Yeah, so we know caregivers need support themselves. And PMI's position to help give caregivers a professional path in project management, whether they're looking to enter or re-enter the workforce. So two resources I want to direct the caregivers to is uh, one is our local chapters. We have 140 chapters in the United States. They provide much of the face-to-face networking and professional development. Uh, Of course, much of that in the last year has been virtual, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we also um, encourage listeners to visit PMI.org slash caregivers, and there we provide access to some free resources to enhance your career and help people get back into the workforce. Because as we mentioned, there are an awful lot of people, especially women, who have stepped out of the workforce over the course of the past year, and many of them uh, feel as though they can't re-enter the workforce, but at the same time are facing the reality that uh, perhaps uh, their family needs them to re-enter the workforce, and so finding themselves between a a rock and a hard place, it would seem, but perhaps this is something to consider. Again, uh, Brantley Underhill, uh, North American uh, Managing Director for the Project Management Institute. Mention again uh, the website where we get more information. Yeah, so once again, that's pmi.org slash caregivers. And know that you're not alone. Visit us or a PMI chapter. We're here for you when you're ready. Brantley, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Be well. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Actually, kind of a light day for broken news this morning. Not a whole lot uh, to share, but we have a, a handful. The California Highway Patrol, you know how weird people in California are sometimes. Uh, the California Highway Patrol recently posted on Instagram about a traffic stop uh, that they made at the Antelope Valley Station. Pulled over a car. <laughs> Officer pulled over a Toyota Prius on an area highway after noticing a large satellite dish mounted right in front of the windshield. <laughs> a satellite dish mounted on the hood of the car right in front of the windshield. Now, I saw the photo of this on social media the other day. And I did not realize at the time that it was actually on the front of the vehicle. I thought it was on the on the back, uh, on the trunk. But no, it was on the on the front. Well, I guess Prius doesn't really have a trunk, so you're going to mount a satellite dish. Got to put it on the hood. And officer said when the driver was asked if the satellite dish impeded their view, they replied, "Quote only when I make right turns." Unquote. <laughs> oh well, that's okay then. The patrol says the dish is illegal under the California Vehicle Code. Uh, Did not say specifically whether the driver was ticketed or released with a warning, but I would think ticketed. I (laughs) shouldn't you be smart enough to know that a satellite dish is probably without. I mean, do you really need a warning or should you know that inherently that that, you know, anyway. This is pretty terrifying. David Frank of Atlanta, Georgia, sharing the story uh, that sometime last week, his wife, Christine, was awakened at night when she felt a really big cat jump up on the bed. Here's the problem. The family does not own a cat. (laughs) Whoa. When she opened her eyes, 
She saw it was an African serval. Is that how you pronounce it? African serval. This is a big wild cat that can weigh 30 to 40 pounds and grow up to three feet tall. Now, I don't know how big this particular cat was, but certainly big enough that it woke her up and alarmed her. Christine's reaction startled the cat off the bed, and she was able to inch out of the room and close the door, trapping the cat inside. The family said the cat had been spotted in their neighborhood a few times before, and it is believed the animal is likely someone's illegal pet that escaped. Authorities are now trying to catch the cat and take it to a local sanctuary. Yikes! How did it get in? That's the thing that I I wonder. How did it get That would be my biggest concern. How did this thing get in my home? <clears throat> Elsewhere in the broken news, a Montana man and his friends can consider themselves heroes to skunks, or at least a specific skunk. This is a Montana. Uh, Bob Wilson was at so, was uh, with some friends at Flathead Lake when they noticed a skunk that was in a bit of a pickle. Quite literally, a pickle jar was stuck on the animal's head. The skunk was trying to free itself with no luck. The group then contained the skunk long enough to pull the jar off its head, after which the skunk quickly scurried off. And lucky for the Good Samaritans, the skunk did not give them a smelly spray as a reward or a memento of their adventure. But there you go. That's kind of a nice thing. Always like to share nice stories in the broken news because so often it's people doing dumb things. It's always nice to have people doing nice things. And speaking of nice things in the broken news, a little closer to home, this from Portsmouth, Ohio, Alma Call. I think it's how you pronounce her name, celebrating a big birthday, and she is giving uh, props to her favorite treat for her longevity. Uh, Ms. Call, Alma, she lives about 100 miles east of Cincinnati in Portsmouth, turned 110 years old on Tuesday, 110, and family and friends gathered at the Hillview Retirement Center to celebrate with her. She tells local news reporters that a major part of her longevity, Hershey's Kisses. <laughs> That's the secret to a long life. She said if she hadn't had them, she never would have made it. <laughs> Turning 110, one of many of Alma's accomplishments, she is a former Miss West Virginia University beauty queen, has traveled much of the world, and she has even met the Queen of England her long life. But Hershey's Kisses, <laughs> she says, the secret to living to be 110. Well, I suppose that you could live to be 110 years old without them, but why would you want to? You know? There you go. That is today's Broken News Report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. WFIN Radio News. We keep you in the know with the events of our community that affect you and your family. Whenever it happens, you can count on us to fill you in with the information you need. We'll also keep you up to date with all the latest from around the Buckeye State with the help of the Ohio News Network. And we cover the nation and the world with the resources of ABC News. The information you need around the clock from your news authority 1330 wfin wfin.com and now at 95.5 fm time now for your daily download the numbers behind the news the statistics that shape our lives you remember a couple of weeks ago the government uh, released their re uh, report on ufos or they didn't call them ufos they call them uh, unidentified aerial phenomena uh, that have been spotted by members of the military and so on. A lot of these things they had video footage of, and uh, the government admitted that they really couldn't definitively say what the objects were. So in a new Pew Research poll, it's kind of interesting, nearly two-thirds of Americans do believe that there is, in fact, alien life 
beyond our planet. 65% said that their best guess is that intelligent life does exist elsewhere in the universe. Just over half of those surveyed, 51%, say they believe that the unidentified flying objects in that the, the video in that intelligence report that the government released are likely evidence of alien life. 36% said the footage was probably not evidence of aliens, and 11% said it definitely was not. They go on to say men more likely to believe in alien life than women, 70% to 60% respectively. Younger people more likely to believe than older Americans. More than three quarters of those under the age of 30 believe that there is alien life compared to 57% of those over the age of 50. And whatever they believe about potential alien life, Americans apparently are not too worried about it. 87% do not see UFOs as a major threat to national security. And this I thought was kind of interesting. About one in four say they believe the aliens are friendly. <laughs> so... I, I don't know whether they asked this or whether this, was, whether this was part of the survey, but I wonder how many people would like to know the answer definitively within their lifetime. My guess would be, if you are one of the 25% or so who believe aliens are friendly, you want to know the answer <laughs> sometime within your lifetime. If you are among the three quarters of Americans who think they are not so friendly, you probably hope we don't find the answer <laughs> within your lifetime. Keeping the faith this morning. So what are you looking forward to most the idea of retirement? Most people, if you ask that question, they think, well, I want to travel. I want to spend more time with family. I just want to relax. How about a personal reformation in your relationship with God? Correspondent John Clemens this morning has the story of one very successful financial planner who in retirement found his calling as a faith-based motivational speaker and author who says many seniors prioritize the benefits of retirement leisure over discovering their purpose of contributing to what God has in store for them during that stage of their life, keeping the faith. 79-year-old Bruce Brinesma is the founder of Retirement Reformation. Followers of Christ have so much to offer in their senior years. The fact that God has an ongoing call on our life, and it doesn't stop when we're 65 or 70. Yet, as a result of the survey that we did, we know that 85% of Jesus' followers, when you ask them what are they going to do in retirement, come up with some version of nothing. Retirement reformation is the opportunity to turn that nothing into something. Right now, the, the largest group of Christ followers that are on the sidelines and can be of the greatest value to building the kingdom are those that are 65 and older, and yet they're on the sideline. And so my question to them is to start a conversation is, would you still like to make a difference? Bridesma writes about the question so many people have about answering the call from God for their purpose in life. That's the question that the Retirement Reformation is geared to help followers of Jesus Christ to make and to find the call that's important for their lives in the future. When a person retires, they could have another three decades of service to the Lord. In today's world, what the culture calls retirement is actually 30 years. And even though I've known that now for a number of years, it, it still impresses me with that length of time. You know, for your listeners, if they think back, what, what was their age 30 years ago? And then say, well, what happened in that 30-year period? And then to be able to transpose that and say, there's going to be, it may not be identical activity, but what's all going to happen in the 30 years that are ahead? Brinesma is following the Lord with his retirement reformation advice. Jesus said very clearly, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I chose you to bear much fruit, fruit that will last. And when we think that now that, that retirement is that 30 years, 
What is the fruit bearing that you are being called to do that will bring meaning and purpose to your life along with joy and freedom? Brinesman writes that our work in the kingdom is for a lifetime, not a season. If your view of your future isn't big enough, if your dream in, a, in, in connection with how God has prepared for you isn't big enough, and so the call is to be able to make it a meaningful life, and that the phrase that we like to use is that we are called to be faithful for a lifetime, not just a season. Could you imagine what our culture would look like if we could muster all those Christians off the sidelines? Now you are, are in the very best position to be able to make a difference in other people's lives. But what is happening is that, is that the devil has actually got, oh, about 35 million Christ followers sitting on the sidelines. Brinesman encourages his readers to develop a plan. That plan is absolutely critical. As a matter of fact, I just finished a series of three books. One of them talks about freedom, and, and we've kind of touched on that. But the second one talks about the necessity of planning and, and what are the key elements that are involved in that. And then the third book in the series is called Charting Your Course, so taking that plan and, and implementing it. All those working years can be the experience you need to answer God's purpose for your life. So when you think about it, you know, God's plan for your life and for mine was really started before time began. That's the way I read my Bible. And secondly, he gave us our DNA. What are the basic constructs of who we are and, and how we think? And then we have all the experiences of life, 60 years worth of experiences. And the, and the greatest value of experience is is that you learn from it and you develop wisdom. Bruce Brinesma tells us about getting more information. Well, the best way to get information on all of the resources that, that have been put together in the last couple of years that are there to help your listeners uh, connect with the journey and begin on that journey of themselves and, and to find the Retirement Reformation Manifesto would be go to our website, which is Retirement Reformation, all one word, retirementreformation.org. This is John Clemens reporting. And that will put a wrap on our podcast for today. A reminder, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. Of course, that is goodmornings.net. You can also connect with us on social media. Shoot us an email if there's something you want to share with us directly. Uh, straight from the webpage, sign up for our daily email newsletter and more. Check it all out, goodmornings.net. Until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.